right, well, if kiddos, if you didn't know, you, you can go. If you wanted to go back to Journey Kids, I think we forgot to dismiss you, but you're good. Uh, my name is Jordan. If I haven't met you yet, I am one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of a series uh, with the title behind me uh, where we are looking at God's good design for our sexuality and um, this issue of sexuality and LGBTQ. IA, like that, that issue of rights and, and movements and pronouns and, and all, of, all of those things. And, and again, our intention is not to uh, make light of the issue or to, to mock the issue. It's so easy to slip into one side or the other. And, and that's, it, it, that's because it's, it's a divisive issue in our culture. It's because it's one of the most controversial and divisive issues in our culture. It's made its way from the margins of our society a, a, a few, uh, you know, a generation or two ago into the very educational curriculum of our schools. And um, it, it is, as a result, it is polarizing among most adults. Most of you are pretty clear on, on what you believe uh, on the issue and um, have opinions. And that informs then, you know, it becomes a political bargaining chip. Because of that, it becomes identity politics are constantly played to further agendas, um, uh, both of one side or the other, and particular candidates and their platforms. And on one side of the issue, you have folks that are trying to leverage it for their good, both political candidates and, and uh, you know, brands and different things are trying to run as far as they can to one side or the other to make sure that they are virtue signaling, that they are here, and to capture that part of the demographic. And on the other side, you have people who are seeing who, you know, how quickly and how harshly and how firmly they can respond on the other side to capture the rest of the, the demographic and Meanwhile, there's a generation being formed. While most of us that are adults kind of know what we believe. But in the midst of this turmoil and this conversation and the media being involved and all these agendas and these things, there's a, there's a generation whose worldview is being shaped and formed. Uh, this political tug of war, this clash of rhetoric uh, the lawsuits, the movie messaging, the social media virtue signaling, all of these things, none of, none of them are happening in a vacuum with, with people who have chosen to be there debating this issue. They're happening on our world stage, in the midst of our culture. This is the movement, this is the moment in which my kids are growing up. The commercials, the, the things that they're seeing, the, the message that they're hearing, the questions that they're hearing, th this is the, the movement in which our nation's future leaders, future moms and dads, influencers, politicians, pastors, teachers, this is shaping them. And here's the deal, church. They need more thoughtful answers. They need us to do a better job of speaking into the heart of the issues, to applying the Bible uh, with the gospel to, uh, as good news to broken people and not just railing against what's right and what's wrong and, and isolating people and contributing to a polarization. They need more thoughtful answers. Our, our, our young people uh, are going to be asked questions about why does it matter. If we don't help them wade through these questions... You can bet that friends and schools and media and, and, and all sorts of other influence, influences will. 
make no mistake, your kids are being discipled. We are being discipled. We are being shaped. We are being formed. Even, though, even if we don't set out and, and set under somebody and say, shape me based off of your beliefs, like all the things that are happening are forming our beliefs. And so our, our, our kids are going to be asked hard questions, and they're going to hear stories about people that they know. They're going to they're gonna see decisions by, by people that they go to school with and that they love, and, and, and they need better answers than what we have given them by and large over the years. They need us to be thoughtful when it comes to questions like, why does it matter? What, why does it matter if two men or, or two women are in love? What, 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 what is it hurting? Why does it matter if a boy wants to change his body parts and take hormones and live like a girl? Why does that matter? What is that hurting? They deserve more thoughtful engagement and explanations than simply railing that it's wrong. They're going to get thoughtful answers for those lobbying for acceptance of these lifestyles. They're going to get thoughtful, personal answers about these issues. And if our response is shallow and without nuance, then we will lose this generation. So that's why we've chose to, to spend a few weeks talking about this issue. I've heard people, uh, when, we, uh, when we dive into things like this, say, like, I don't really want to hear about this at church. I hear about it, you know, all the time on the news. I hear about it there. I, I don't, I, when I come to church, I don't want to hear about that. And, and I think we need to flip that, and we need to make sure that we are letting God's word speak into these issues and form our hearts and our minds with, with first priority, with most priority, and then we look and let... Uh, that be the lens with which we see the culture and the world and we hear our news and we filter through that. And so in addition to those who are being formed, though there are those who are struggling. There are those whose worldview are already solidified and yet their hearts and souls are lost. There are those who are well into adulthood and they're, again, their worldviews are kind of in place. And yet they have desires within themselves that they don't know where to turn with. We have to be careful not to forget that behind this debate, behind this rhetoric, the vitriol from both sides are actual people. Image bearers. God's children. Sinners. Lost from God, just like you and I were. So, yeah, we need to spend some time hearing what does God's word say. This is, in addition to the people who are struggling with their sexuality, and they need us to respond as Jesus would. There are people in the periphery that aren't struggling with their sexuality, but aren't Christians, have not yet been saved, but yet this is one of the reasons that they reject Christianity is because they know that we are, you know, opposed to homosexuality and, and other trans and, 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 you know, gender fluidity and these things. And, and it is getting labeled as, like, that position, the, the, the belief that God has made us male and female and that that is where sex is a gift and anywhere else it's evil, anywhere else it's out, outside of bounds, that position has earned us a, a label of, of, of not just traditional, but evil. Like, this is, like, top one, two, and three things that, or top three, one of the top three things that reasons people reject Christianity, along with the problem, the evil 
and suffering. Like, this is right up there. So we have to have thoughtful answers, thoughtful reasons for why this matters. You see, it is this very same conversation that can lead many and has led many to see to say, you know what, that's why I don't think it's a hill we have to die on. Just let people be. And we see denominations making that choice. We see churches after churches making that choice. You see people that you know making that choice. And, and it's, it's, it's easier to tolerate, affirm, move into that direction because it, it, we're not sure the battle's worth fighting. And so my hope today is to remind us why it matters. To remind us why it matters. And then in two weeks, we'll pause next week. We'll, we'll, we're just going to celebrate and, and, you know, it's our 10-year anniversary. And then the, the final week of this series will be after that on the 30th. And, and we're just going to talk about how do we, how do we respond. So today's just going to be why does it matter. And then on the 30th, we're going to talk about the how and, and, and the practical questions of what does that look like? So the question before us today is why does it matter if we vary from God's design? We've spent several weeks unpacking, per, building a foundation, taking, back, taking us all back to the creation and rooting all of this conversation in God's creation where he made us male and female, put them together in one flesh union, said for this reason you'll leave your father and mother. It is that union that, that uh, allows them to uh, carry out the, the command um, to be fruitful and multiply, and it is this that God said was very good. So we've rooted all of this conversation in that. If you're joining us for the first time today, know that we've spent weeks looking at that, and, and you, can, you can find that online and catch up with us if you'd like. But, uh, so today, um, we, we, we want to look at, okay, why does it matter when we vary from that? I understand this is God's word, but is it really hurting anyone? Is it really an issue that we have to be so firm in? And so, uh, very simply put, the reason it matters is two reasons. One, I mean, there's more than two. We're going to sum it up in, in two. One is that joy is at stake. Two is that souls are at stake. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Tara just read for us. And um, you might say, well, Jordan, that's a, that's a really small passage of Scripture. It's just a couple of verses. And, that, and that's not the only sin that is listed in those verses. It says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Romans 1 would uh, make sure to lump in women in that as well. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such are some of you. And, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just going to camp out there and let that simple truth propel us into this conversation. Because what Paul is saying very, very simply, very bluntly, is that we can't pretend and presume upon the grace of God that we just claim his name and then go about living our life any way that we want. That, that the very nature of the gospel is that God is not only a God who, gets, who has made us and created us and told us how we are to live, but he's also a God who, who cares so much about how we live that he came to give himself to, to make a way for us to have life. And so he gets, to, he gets to say things like this. He gets to make sure that we know we don't get to just claim Jesus' name and then do whatever we want because we got grace or because he'll be forgiven or because God is a God of love, surely he will accept Love, isn't love love? See, we need to be careful. We need to know how to respond to these things. 
we could add a third point and say that love is at stake. But I think you'll find the implications of that as we walk through this, that, that if we're going to really love people, that doesn't mean affirming at any cost. That means we have to speak up when they're in danger. And so, no, this is not the only sin that's in this list. But it is, at least at the time, the one that is being exalted by our culture, the one that is being aggressively promoted as not only okay, but, but noble and, and good and right. It is the one that is sweeping up our young people. Like, it's become, like, I don't know if you've noticed this trend, but um, because this has is, this is become an issue of what some would even say are, you know, an issue of, of rights and, uh, and of civil justice. I, I think, you know, some high-ranking uh, officials have even said this is the, the civil rights movement of our day is the LGBTQ um, issue. And, and, I, and I, would, I would say, like, listen, uh, we, we, first of all, like, you have to know that like, an issue of ethnicity is something that, that God has given us and that is to be honored and, and is uh, sacred and is absolutely unjust and absolutely needed to be reformed and played out and Christians absolutely had a role to play in that and still have a role to play in that where racism exists. But we, we can't conflate a distortion of sexuality with the sacredness of ethnicity. One is given to us by God to be honored by, by our brothers and sisters. The other is a distortion of a good gift given to us by God. And we can't call what God has said is sinful. We can't call that good. God says that, in fact, is evil. And so, so we have to, to step into this and know that this is the issue that the world is saying is good. What I started to say was that because this has become that civil rights type of issue, I, I don't know if you realize there's a, there's a draw for our young people to be a part of, of something that matters, to be a part of a movement, even to be a part of a people who are persecuted if you will. And so there are now people who are, who are moving, young people who are moving into a space and claiming that they are homosexual or are, you know, gender, uh, you know, fluid or, 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 you know, whatever the, 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 the way that it's playing out for them. Some of them are drawn to that simply because this seems like a noble cause to be a part of. And if you're going to persecute them, you know what? I'm a part of them. And there's so many dynamics that are happening at play here when this movement, when, when our world is, is trying to take one of these sins again and, and lift it up and say, this is not only okay, but it's, it's good and right and noble and should be honored, then, then we have to be able to, to counter that with truth. We have to be able to counter that with love and make sure that we, uh, not only do we have our, a response ready for them, but we, again, back to those who are being formed, back to those who are being raised in our homes and in our churches, we have to be able to rightly explain that, no, God's design actually is good, and it's not oppressive, and it's not bigot-like, and it's not outdated. So this is why we are, we are um, focusing on this passage, this, this portion of this passage, because indeed it is talking about any number of unrepentant sins here. Paul is saying you don't get to just add Jesus to your life, do what you want. Uh, people who live in those ways that embody those sins, that live in unrepentant sexual immorality of any sort, right, or, or drunkards or, or the greedy or thieves or revilers. But here's the deal. Our world doesn't have a campaign to say that thieving is okay, right? You see what I'm getting at? So this is why we are, we are, we are going there. This is why we are letting this take up more of our time. And 
And, and yes, this is just a couple of passages, but uh, if, if that concerns you, I would refer you to back to two weeks ago when Pastor Chad walked us through a survey of really the entire Bible. How many of y'all felt like you were in Bible drill for that sermon, right? He walked us through just a, a survey of the entire Bible of, of, of what this has looked like as, as God's people, God's creation have, have always struggled with counterfeits and pursuing sexuality outside of bounds of the way that God has, has led us. And then secondly, I would say the theme of God's design is built in at the very beginning of Scripture. From the very beginning as we're being made into male and female, or as we're being made into humans, our maleness and our femaleness matters. And that, that union between a male and a female is what God has designed. And so that's at the foundation of the whole book starting, the whole story starting. And then in the redeeming of the broken mess that the world um, you know, and our progressiveness has got us into. Listen, here's the deal. You read the Bible, even if you read history, uh, the, the idea of progressiveness from a cultural standpoint never ends well. It always ends with more entanglement, more struggle, more pain. What promises to bring freedom actually brings slavery. What, fr- what promises to bring fulfillment actually just adds to emptiness empty feelings and struggles. And so as the world was already ripe, this is part of Chad's point a couple weeks ago, this is not a new issue. When Jesus stepped out of heaven and into the manger that we're going to celebrate and just, you know, Christmas is not that far away, in that moment, in a Roman-dominated world, it was a world full of sexual confusion. It was a world full of homosexuality. It was a world that, that was already way off base. And, and it is in that world that Jesus grows up, that he begins to speak up, and he unashamedly points back to the Genesis creation account and says, this is where sexuality is okay. This is where not only sexuality is okay, it's not tolerated. This is where it's a good gift between a male and a female for a lifetime. Jesus affirms the creation as the way to life. And so, uh, yes, we're, we're focusing on a small section today, but it is an affirmation of the entire theme of the Scripture that is affirmed over and over and over again. And Jesus says, <clears throat> into that world that is confused, he says, listen, um, I've come to give you life. You've got an enemy, and he's come to take your life. He showed up at the very beginning in Genesis 3. His goal was not to make our lives better. His goal was to destroy us because we were God, God's beloved. Jesus steps up and comes, and John 10 paints this picture that, yeah, there, there are those who have come to harm you, but that's not me. My rules may get twisted by some. My laws, my, my commandments may get twisted by some to say that I'm here to take from you, but in reality, I'm here to lead you to life. He says, there is a thief, and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. So God isn't giving us rules and laws and, and restricting the way that we can play out our lives because he just really enjoys being a you know, legalistic uh, you know, narcissistic God who gets to control us. No, he's not on a power trip. He says, I- I've come to give you life. And, and, I'm, uh, and Jesus goes so far to say, listen, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I will prove to you that I have your good in mind. I will not just yell at you from afar. I will not just lob commands at you and, and condemn you from afar. I'm going to come into your midst. I'm going to, as Jacob said, bring you under my wings and I will lay down my very life so that you can have hope so that you can have redemption so that you can have life this is our god this is 
his heart. He's not outdated. He's not a bigot. He's not a killjoy. He's a joy giver, a self-sacrificing God. He's a pursuing father seeking to give his children the life that they long for. And, and homosexuality and other lifestyles like it, yeah, it, it's, it's not the only one on the list, but it is the one that's being pushed in front of us. So this really brings us to this place of, of wrestling with, do we actually believe the Bible or not? Like, this is a critical issue for us. If we're going to go forward with any conviction in this and any right thinking in this, we're going to have to really wrestle through, do we actually believe what the Bible says or do we not? Because if we do, then God made us male and female. He called it very good. And he said for man to leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, to become one flesh, procreate, and carry out his cultural mandate. And this is how he's called us to live. And if that is true, and it is, but if you believe that is true, then issues of sexuality absolutely matter. Because that's God's good design for joy, for right living, and for human flourishing. So when he says, hey, don't you know that people who practice sexual immorality of any sort and kind, homosexuality included, don't you know that people who embrace that... He's not talking about people who, who have a desire within them that, that they struggle against, that they repent of, and that they submit to the Lord. He's not talking about somebody who might have same-sex attraction, who surrendered to the Lord and is living celibate or, or is living faithfully in a heterosexual marriage, even though that, that desire, that, that fantasy, that lust may still be there. He's not talking about them. He's talking about people who, who have stepped in and, and embraced a lifestyle of sexuality that is counter to what God has called them to. He says, don't you know that those people... They won't enter the kingdom of God. Again, sexual immoral, the people who don't want God's boundaries on their sexuality in any way. The, the same is true for people who, who, who don't want to practice sex inside of marriage, but they want to do it wherever they want. The same is true for them. People that just embody that, they're unrepentant of that, they won't inherit the kingdom of God either. Right? And the same is true of people who are greedy and drunkards and just refuse to repent of their sin. They don't get into heaven just because they claim Jesus' name on some church roll. If we've embraced Jesus as our Savior, our lives are transformed. We give them back over to him for him to lead and guide and direct us how we should live. And so people that are able to live contrary to that without conviction, without a struggle, Paul's saying they're not in the kingdom. And they won't be in heaven. So that, that should tell us something about the importance of this issue, and that should inform us of how we go forward. So the first issue is that joy is at stake. Because if, if people who are living in an unrepentant lifestyle of, of sexuality or any of these others, to be clear, but for the purpose of us today, people who are living in an alternative sexuality, they're missing out on God's good design. Therefore, their joy is at stake. God cares who we sleep with. I think this is from John Piper. Because he cares deeply about the people who are doing the sleeping. He cares because sex was his idea, not ours. He cares because misusing sex can in inflict profound hurt and damage. <clears throat> he cares because he regards us as worthy of his care. And in fact, that care isn't seen only in telling us how we should use sex, but also in how he makes forgiveness and healing available when we mess this up. 
God's design is good. And it, it is in submission to and the pursuit of this design that we find our joy and wholeness. Regardless of what we feel inside. See, that's, that's part of our, our culture's problem is we've elevated a feeling, we've elevated desires up to, to be the determining factor of how we should live. And, and, and the Bible says, no, no, you're going to have desires and feelings that are counter to my design. And you have to crucify them onto the cross so that you can live with me in fullness of life. And so any other attempts of, of, of pursuing wholeness are in vain when it comes to sexuality. They're empty, and they're, as Chad said a few weeks ago, they're at the bottom, they're, Bottom line, they're idolatrous. They're exchanging who God is for something else. They're exchanging who God is for a lie. They're exchanging the worship of God for the worship of their own desires or for creation in some distorted way. A Christian view of the body, though, like a Christian view of understanding that it's not just our souls that matter, but actually our bodies have been given intentionality when God created us, sees this as a gift given to us by God, and and, and that it's a structure and that it's his structure that sets con- the conditions for our freedom and joy. God made us male and female, and it is his rails that we run on. It is his structure that lead us to freedom and joy. John Piper is right when he says that God's judgment on homosexual and lesbian relationships is not because he's a killjoy, but because he's opposed to what kills joy. God's judgment on those that are outside of the the bounds of his creation and way of living is is not because he's a killjoy, but because he's actually opposed to what kills joy. The enemy is a counterfeiter. That's what Jesus said, John 10, 10. We see it over and over again. Uh, We we saw it so clearly, if you were here with us when we walked through the book of Daniel, uh, we see the spirit of Babylon rise up and, and, and what God has created and called good, Satan seeks to counterfeit and distort. And, and, and in Daniel, you see that Daniel was taken from his homeland and placed into the, uh, the capital city of Babylon to be indoctrinated, to be shaped into what, what would further their agenda as a kingdom. And it involved things like sexuality. It involved things like, you know, what was good and right, who we should worship. And so, it, like, don't, like, don't be deceived to think that our enemy isn't really, you know, interested in indoctrination, in, in making his messages subtly appear into all sorts of avenues of our life. That's absolutely a strategy of our enemy. It is real and it is effective. And listen, church, if we're going to be effective in going forward here, we have to understand that America is Babylon. It's not Jerusalem. You hear me? We are, we, are, we are living in Babylon, not in Israel. America is, is not God's people. The church is God's people. God has made no covenant with America. He has blessed this country, and I'm proud to be an American. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But if we're going to live faithfully, we have to understand that our, our culture, our world is being informed by God's enemy. And we are going to be indoctrinated by that if we are not careful. And so we have to see ourselves like Daniel and his friends living in, a, in an unfaithful world like Babylon that is pushing agendas on us. And we have to be really, really clear about where we stand, what hills we take, and how we follow Jesus in the midst of this world. 
And that mindset will help us live rightly and faithfully and not be surprised by the nonsense that comes our way. So if we don't voraciously teach our people about the goodness of God's design, then the enemy will gain their ear with clever, seemingly compassionate appeals to tolerance and affirmation and love. So here's the deal. It matters because homosexuality and other forms of sexual um, lifestyles outside of God's bounds, that's actually an obstacle to fullness of life, to fullness in Christ. It, it is, in fact, an empty and faux replacement for the good design of the Creator. And if that's true, if homosexual behavior is a sin, an obstacle to the fullness of Christ, then the church, John Piper goes on to say, has an obligation to protect the church from the debilitating effect of sanctioned immorality. So if this is true, then we have an obligation, as, I have an obligation as pastors, as elders, like we have an obligation as, as leaders in this church, and we have an obligation as church to protect the church against sanctioning immorality. We have an obligation to make sure we're really clear on what God says so that we don't call something good that God, in fact, calls sinful. So we have that obligation. And then additionally, to protect the homosexual from the wrath of God and the damnation that awaits for, to protect anyone who's headlong in sin and embracing it and is being affirmed by the world. We have an obligation to speak up to them because there's far more at stake, he says, than just the satisfaction of sensual impulses. There's far more at stake, which brings us to our second point. Souls are at stake. Souls are at stake. And no one refusing to repent of sin, Paul says here, be it homosexuality, fornication, or anything else, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, they say they're a Christian. Listen, the Bible goes on to say if they live in unrepentant sin, then they're proving that they're not. And yes, we have, a, we have an obligation to care about them, to speak up, to put as many warning signs and road-like signs along the way to make sure they know they're, they're headed toward hell. It's not, it's not unloving. It's not harsh. It's not bigot-like. In fact, it's unloving not to speak up. Love doesn't accept and affirm sin that will send people to hell. It just doesn't. <clears throat> And allowing the propagation of this ideology to grow unopposed, uncountered in our culture, paves the road to hell for so many people, including those that are being grown up and are growing up and are being shaped by this issue. Anybody heard about the increase in what's called deconstruction? People who are once Christians that are going through a process of what they call deconstruction, where they're, they're doing just that, deconstructing their faith and, and, and moving to something different. They're no longer affirming the, the traditional Christian confession of faith. And it's a trend, and there's famous people doing it, and I, I don't have a lot of opinions, or even suggesting that you need to be super concerned about it, other than knowing that is it's a trend our young people are experiencing. And if we don't do our job to make sure they know the goodness of God, then we shouldn't be surprised when something like what happens in Judges 2.10 happens in our own culture and our own society. It's one of the most haunting verses for me in the Bible is Judges 2.10, whenever it says, and then there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. 
after so much impact, after so much of God working with, loving his people, bringing them through the Exodus story, bringing them into the promised land, conquering their enemies, giving them what the, the leadership they need, providing for them, blessing them. Moses died, Joshua dies, and then there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. Why? Because they didn't, they didn't do what, what Moses had told them to do back in Deuteronomy 6, which is talk about God all the time. Talk about him in your homes. Hang it up over your doorpost. Talk about it when you sit down, when you rise up. Make sure that your kids know about the goodness of God. Make sure they know that he's not just a God who gives you rules, but he's a God who got us out of slavery. Make sure that they know that. And if they don't know that, don't be surprised when they're swept away into idolatry. Don't be surprised when the neighbor's gods and the neighbor's lifestyles look appealing. Church, we shouldn't be surprised when the world's lifestyle looks appealing, when we haven't taught our young people about the goodness of our God. So here's what I think is at least anecdotally true about most who are going through deconstruction. They're not actually re rejecting their faith because of some new revelation. They're not rejecting their faith because they've heard somebody tell them something profound that discredits Christianity most of the time. Most of the time. What's going on is that they have a lifestyle that they actually want to affirm and it doesn't fit within Christianity. So they want to deconstruct that and reconstruct something that doesn't call their sin out. Or there's a pain or there's a wound going on with them about church or about Christianity. It, it is very rarely just about intellectual information. It is almost always about heart issues, sin that they want to be given affirmation and that they want to be given, you know, freedom to pursue. It doesn't fit in what the Bible says. So the Bible must be wrong. Let me find evidence. Let me find a narrative. Let me find people who will tell me that I'm no longer bound by this so I can live the lifestyle I want to live. These things run in parallel. I promise you they're connected. So, souls are at stake. Because it's, it, when we say, man, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord back in Judges 2.10, that's not, like we're not just grieving the, the, the cultural cost of a nation that doesn't, no longer lives by the morals of Christianity. We're not just grieving that. You know what we're grieving? People who don't know God and are on their way to hell. You understand that? We're, we should not just care about this because it will affect how our world looks and our comfort and what's natural and what's not natural and what our kids hear at school. Like all of those things matter, but at the bottom line, what matters most is that there are actually souls at stake. And not saying anything while the world puts this up as a, as a thing to be pursued is paving the road to hell for a whole generation and then some. So yeah, we've got to care. We've got to care. And some of you are already asking about, okay, well, how? What do we do? Well, again, that's what we're going to talk about in two weeks. I will, I will give you a bit of a spoiler alert. It, it is not about hateful Facebook posts. It's not about getting you a sign and going and standing on some roadside. Okay? That is not our response. We will, we will do our best to give you thoughtful helpful principles as we go forward and to continue to, to revisit this topic as it's only going to get increasingly important. But we have to first know that it matters because of all the noise, the Bible's position is actually simple and beautiful. The covenant, the one flesh bond between a husband and a wife, 
The Bible says that, that pictures Christ and his church. Sexual intimacy is a gift here and actually here alone. Jesus says there actually won't be marriage in heaven. And you're like, oh, man, I'm really, I'm going to miss that. Well, you won't. Because what we know, although we don't know all the details, what we know is that heaven won't be less than. That any good gift here is only a foretaste of what we're going to experience in full there. So though we won't know marriage and marriage, marital intimacy the same way we do here, it's because our desires, the fullness of our desires will be so overwhelmingly satisfied there that we won't, we won't miss it. We will see the point that God had given us in our sexual desires fully culminated and consummated in our relationship with Jesus when we're standing with him face to face. So sexuality doesn't define us. It's not the primary issue. It doesn't drive all that we are. Our, our culture tries to make it such, whether it's homosexuality or not. It's all sex-saturated. It's all about this identity. And so, listen, we need to know that, that sexual intimacy, it's a gift, but it's, it's for here. And all, like, husband and wife, that's the way that it's a gift. Anything outside of that is indeed sinful and wicked, and, and it violates God's law. And without true repentance, whether it's homosexuality or other forms of sexual immorality that is heterosexual, the Bible, it, it, it's not just about condemning those relationships. It's saying God has given us a design for our sexuality, and anything outside of that is wicked and sinful. And without true repentance, will bring forth the wrath of God on ourselves, on our souls. So here's the deal. If we lose these anchor points, we can't bring good news to a broken and confused world. You, see, some have left this conversation and said, you know what, we're not going to make this a hill we'll die on. We'll go ahead and let go of that doctrine because we want to love and reach more people. Right? That's actually the heart. I, I think most churches who have gone this direction, they, they don't hate God. Right? They're trying to love people. They actually believe that by letting go of this issue, they're going to be able to love more people. But one author says, listen, when we lose these anchor points, we, we can't bring good news to anyone in their besetting sins because we'll be like a person trying to administer CPR in a zero-gravity environment. Without a fixed anchor point, we can't apply enough pressure to bring life back. Do you see the picture he's putting out there? Do you see he's saying if, if we move away from this, we'll be like we can't actually bring good news. It is that critical. It is that crucial to our faith. It doesn't have to be the primary issue. We don't start our evangelistic conversations about whether you are, okay, wait, you need to know Jesus? Well, where's your sexuality at? No, no, you're a sinner. It's like I'm a sinner, and we start with the need of Jesus. But if we lose this, then we start to pull out pieces of the foundation of Scripture that this is no longer allowed to bear its full weight and is therefore no longer good news. And we're, like I said, like people trying to administer CPR in a zero-gravity environment, there's not enough of a fixed anchor point to apply the pressure we need to bring life. So to allow someone to believe that transitioning to look like another gender taking hormones and living like another gender, to move from one to the other, or to embrace any version of, sexual, of a sexual lifestyle that's outside of God's good design. It's like standing by while someone who is desperately thirsty chugs ocean water. Right? Like, you, you wouldn't do that. Right? Not only is that not going to satisfy their thirst, 
It's actually going to harm them. And over time, kill them if they keep at it. So we, we don't stand by, think, like knowing, okay, well, they're just longing for something. We, we got to say, that won't satisfy you. Just like Solomon did with everything else in our life that is material and on this earth. Solomon said, it won't satisfy you. It won't satisfy you. And this is back to this issue. We can't forget that behind the rhetoric, behind all of the debate, there are people who are struggling to find life. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe that's you, your, your sexuality. You're not sure what to make of it. You know what your mom and dad has said. You know what this small town culture says. And, and maybe you know what L.A. says, but you, you don't know what you should do with it. Well, here's what the Bible says. Our God is a good God. He made us male and female, and he called that good. There's brokenness in this world that exists. There are sinful desires that exist in all of us that have to be surrendered to the Lord. And that's true of all of us, whether it's homosexuality or some other sin. But the invitation is to come to Jesus. I want to close by reading Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 9. And I want you to hear this as, as God's call to our confused world. You see this confusion, this agenda seeking. I want you to see a broken and a thirsty and a hungry world. See, Christians, part of knowing how to respond is, is, is moving beyond seeing it as them and some ideology and some debate amongst political sides. We need to have the eyes and the heart of Jesus. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he began to weep. His heart broke, and he had compassion upon them. Why? Because he says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's when he says what Jacob quoted earlier, man, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how often I've longed to gather you under my wings like a hen does to her chicks. This is our God. So I want you to hear this message, and I want you to think about those who are struggling with sexuality, those in your family, those in our world, those, period. I just want you to hear it this way. Isaiah 55, it'll be on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles there. It says this, come, <laughs> come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And you labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. This is God speaking to a broken world, a world that has defied him and is looking for satisfaction outside of him. This is what he said. Listen to me. Eat what's good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me and hear that your soul may live. And I'll make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. This, this will be applied to you. God says, listen, I know you have a longing. I know you're not sure how it fits in. I know you're not sure what it's going to look like on the other side of surrendering to me. Are you still going to have sexual desires that are outside of him? Are you, are you going to be, you know, conform back into what was natural? Or are you going to struggle with that for your lifetime? We're not sure. But what Jesus says is, come to me and, and, and what's been longing and unfulfilled in you, I will fulfill. I will give you rest. I will give you satisfaction for your hunger and your thirst, and I will make your soul live. I, I will apply my covenant to you. See, no matter what your sin is, you're not outside of the will of God, because how 1 Corinthians 6 ended, that little passage we read, 
Don't you know these people that continue living that lifestyle don't inherit the kingdom of God? But he says, guess what? And such were some of you. But you have been what? Washed. You have been cleansed. You have been made clean. This is the invitation of our God. Come to me. Though your sins are scarlet, I'll make you white as snow. I will give you my covenant. I will make my love wash over you. I will love you the way that I've loved David. I made him a witness to the peoples and a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know and a nation that you uh, do not know shall run to you because of the Holy because of the Lord and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Isn't that a theme this morning? You heard Chad? We didn't plan all that. It's just the message of the gospel. You heard Chad talk about the prodigal son, the father running to him that he could have compassion upon him, inviting him to return. We heard Jacob talking about longing to gather us in. And this is how we end, that the Lord may have compassion upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon the wicked their ways. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. His ways are higher, they're better, and they're beyond us. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and I pray that your spirit would come and make your goodness known. I don't know everybody's stories here and their struggle, struggles and their fears, their pain. I know we've got families with hearts broken over kids. We've got families with concerns. We've got people with loved ones that they don't know how to have a conversation about this issue because the world has made it so divisive we're not sure how to speak up but I pray that today your spirit would come and make it clear what is good make it clear to the sinner struggling with their sexual identity make it clear what is good and make it clear that you've made a way for them to come to receive pardon to receive forgiveness and for us your people would you give us eyes to see the world as you do? To both have compassion and a broken heart for a world that is struggling to find hope in a place that we know is empty of it. Help us to have compassion on them. But at the same time, help us to hold fast, hold firm to how you've called us to live. Help us to be full of both grace and truth. As Jesus, you held both in perfect, beautiful, not even tension, just in all that you are, you hold both grace and truth. Help us to embody that in our world. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are, what your word says, and how you've called us to respond. All this we ask in Jesus' name today. Amen.